Thank you, Danielle. Um, before we dive into the, the message, if you have your Bibles and want to open to that chapter, 2 Thessalonians 3, we're going to look at, look at that. We're going to finish up the books, 1 and 2 Thessalonians today. Uh, next week marks the beginning of Advent. And so in here, things are going to start looking a little bit different. But I do want to make sure you're aware, especially those of you guys who are middle and high schoolers, this Saturday is a progressive dinner. So really, that's the kickoff of everything. So want to make sure you're aware of that. If you don't know the details, check your email or check with Pastor Airmall. He's got some fun stuff. He and Joanna have some fun stuff planned. But it's essentially going from one house to another to another. And they're doing some really cool things. And then, um, as you heard in his prayer, the following Saturday, the 9th, there are several folks who are going to be headed up to Baltimore to the uh, Operation Christmas Child Processing Center. And that is something that uh, several of us got to do last year. Um, so I want to encourage you, if you have availability and have time, um, jump in on that. You'll, you'll find the link in the midweek email. But it's a really, really cool time. And then uh, we're going to... Each Sunday, we're going to be doing Advent things, and then on uh, Sunday night, so Sunday the 24th, we'll have two services, one in the morning and then one at night at 6 o'clock. So just kind of be aware of that. I know uh, it's a busy season, and there's lots of gatherings and all sorts of things, but we're going to worship the Lord uh, in, in that way. Now, I don't know if you guys have ever noticed, but sometimes it's difficult to say goodbye um, and we run into that sometimes here. There are folks who are standing around talking forever and ever and ever. And there are a few times when I've had to say, hey, uh, I got to go. Do you mind if I turn out the lights on? You guys could just let yourselves out. And that's after, you know, a half hour. But sometimes, sometimes, you know, it's difficult to leave a place because then there's, there's all those little things that didn't get said in that gathering. There's all those little things that you really want to make sure the other person is aware of. They're setting up the next time you're going to get together. Um, there's uh, cleaning up stuff, and so sometimes just it's hard to say goodbye. And so I feel like as we read through some of the epistles, we run into that in the, in the tail end of some of Paul's letters. He's getting to the end. He knows he's already spoken finally, and now he's ready to just close. Well, as he's writing or as he's dictating these words, the other things are coming into his mind. And so as Danielle read earlier, he's saying, finally, pray for us, and oh, and this, oh, and that, and, and it's hard to say goodbye. It's hard to finish a letter, which, of course, finally he did by signing it himself. And so just as he did with the previous letters, so in, in this letter to the Thessalonians, the second letter, he, he provides this litany of instructions, this, this hodgepodge of things for them to remember, things in some ways he's mentioned before, but in other, other ways he's bringing up something new for, to remind, to make sure they're aware of this. These um, and it seems like as he's looking at these things, he seems to be helping us understand that these attributes should, should be part of what the culture of a church should exhibit. These aren't exhaustive, and he's not saying, hey, this is everything that there is, but there should be something of, a cult of the culture of a church in these things. And so in these closing verses, in this final chapter, Paul talks about prayer, he talks about performance or conduct, and he talks about providence. And it's as though Paul is saying, I'm not sure when I'll see you again, but make sure you do these things, please. And so if you want to take notes in your outline, first of all, Paul begins by addressing a culture of prayer. 
You know, we've seen several times, I don't know if you noticed this, but each chapter of of uh, Second Thessalonians has finished with a small prayer. He, he had a very brief prayer at the end of chapter one and then another one at the end of chapter two. And now here in chapter three, he's bringing up prayer again. But here in a rare occurrence, Paul seeks prayer. He's not just saying, I'm praying for you. He's saying, I want you to pray for me. So in other words, Paul is, is presenting a prayer requested in verses one to three. Now, I got to tell you, there are some times when people will come to me and say, hey, will you pray for me? And I'm certainly happy to pray. But they have this this like little gig in there, this little dig. Well, they say, because you've got special access, you've got the REV in front of your name, you've got special access to God. And so God hears your prayers better than anybody else's. And I want to tell you, that is a lie from the pit of hell. I don't have any better access to God than anybody does. In fact, I've, I've been in prayer circles with some of you guys in community groups and gotten to hear you pray. And man, sometimes I wish I could pray with the same power that some of you pray with. And so here Paul recognizes that everybody, we all have the same access to God. We all have that same access. And so he understands that, that, that he's laying on the Thessalonians this request saying, please pray for us. Look at verses 1 to 3 again. He says, finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. It seems like there are two specific prayers that Paul has. He's, he's saying, first of all, please, you know, He's praying for the advancing word, and he's praying that God would deliver them. And so this idea of the advancing word, Paul knows that the word of the Lord has to go forward. If there's going to be any fruit in ministry, it's got to be following the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord has to advance. It's the word of the Lord that instructs people about the truth of God and the salvation that is found in him. The word is our guide. And as a church, when we pray in our community groups or here in corporate worship, I think we need to be praying similar prayers for our missionaries and for other churches, that the word of the Lord would go forth before them, that that God's word would, would bear fruit in their lives and in their ministry. But I also want to encourage you to be praying for your elders in this way, for Ermal and me, for Carl and Vern and Brian. Because as elders and as ministry leaders, it's sometimes easy to do what is pragmatic or what is practical and not necessarily the biblical. So pray that we would be biblically minded in all of the things that we're leading us as a church. Missionaries and pastors alike can be tempted to do things that are deemed acceptable in the world, thereby diluting the truth. So pray that we would have discernment to act accordingly. And I think Paul's request is a good instruction for us because he reminds us that it is the word that produces fruit. The word of God, by the word of God, he created all things. By his word, he sustains all things. Isaiah 55 says, the rain and the snow come down from the heavens and stay on the ground to water the earth. They cause the grain to grow, producing seed for the farmer and bread for the hungry. It is the same with my word. I send it out, and it always produces fruit. I will accomplish all that I want to do. 
and it will prosper everywhere I send it. So unless the word advances and is honored or is respected, the work we do is in vain. So pray that the word would advance, would spread ahead. But his second request is for deliverance from wicked and evil people. As with ministry based on pragmatism, Paul recognizes that there are people who find offense at the gospel. There are people who don't like the message of the word of God, and so they, they want to push back against that. And Paul was no stranger to that kind of, of things. He, he faced beatings. He faced imprisonment. He faced other forms of persecution. And I don't think Paul is asking for relief from the pain that he's experiencing. But he is asking that they be protected from the devices of evil men. That it wouldn't hinder his work from the Lord. You know, here in the States, we, we may not face the persecution and trials that our brothers and sisters face in, in other contexts. But I do think it's tempting to do things here that cause compromise because we want to avoid unwanted attention. After all, we're challenged to pray for our governing leaders in order that we might be able to lead peaceful and quiet lives. And yet there, were, there, there, there are some who will do all that they can to ridicule and silence those who stand for the good news of the gospel. But I got to tell you, I think in, in reading over this and in and, and thinking about Paul's request here, I think there's a personal application to this. Paul doesn't bring this up on his own, and, and he doesn't talk about his own struggles here. He's talked about that in other, in other letters, in other books. That wasn't necessarily appropriate for what the Thessalonians needed. But I know in, in my own life, the wicked and evil man that torments me most is me. Elsewhere, Paul has written for, this is Romans chapter 7, 19 to 24. He says, for I do not do the good I want. But the evil that I do not want is, is what keeps me from, is what I keep on doing. And now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? So whether we're praying for people here or people abroad, may we join in this prayer as well, that God would bring deliverance from wicked and evil people. Even the wicked and evil person that is gradually being killed day by day. But in addition to asking for prayer, Paul also discusses a prayer offered. He offers up a prayer for the Thessalonians. Look at verses 3 to 5. He says, He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we command. <clears throat> May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. See, Paul begins by reminding them in light of the faithfulness of God that, that God will guard or establish or strengthen them. 
And because it is God who initiates our relationship with him, it is his word that lays the foundation and raises up protective measures. And once we are his, nothing that the evil one will do can separate us from God. And the result of God's establishing or strengthening work and his guarding work is life in line with the word of God. And Paul knows that they will do the work, some of which he's going to address in the next paragraph. He knows that they're going to listen to what he's saying and, and obey the commands that Paul has specifically for them. And so Paul's prayer is then for the Lord to direct their hearts. And notice what he says there. Notice the direction. He wants, he's praying that God would direct their hearts toward his love, toward God's love, and toward the steadfastness of Christ. Oh, that we would fully grasp the depth of God's love for us. R.C. Sproul has said that God has a holy love and a holy wrath, but not a loving wrath or a wrathful love. It's easy to think of God as purely holy, just a just God, a God who has expectations, but when we truly grasp his love, it changes how we act toward others. William Temple said, love, love of God is the root. Love of our neighbor is the fruit of the tree of life. Neither can exist without the other. One is the cause, the other the effect. And when we grasp the love of God, our actions and our motivations are not based on obligation, but privilege and even pleasure. It's a change. It's a heart change from something I have to do to something I get to do. So prayer should be part of our church. But the next thing that Paul addresses is a culture of performance. Now, I use that word because I wanted another P word to go along with the other two. So I'm not talking about performance in order to earn something, but performance in order to conduct our lives in a certain way. There were a, a few factors influencing the Thessalonian Christians. And as we saw in the first letter, there were some who gave up working because they assumed that Jesus' return was imminent. He was going to come any day now, so why should I keep on working? But they were also fighting against a general disdain in Greek culture for work. Some people said that, that manual labor was beneath them, so if it, was, if it involved manual labor, they weren't going to do it. And so instead of working, they were becoming idle or becoming busybodies. They were sticking their noses in everybody's business. They were depending on other people for their livelihood. And in this culture of performance, or we could say having a biblical work ethic, Paul provides three commands. And first of all, Paul tells us people to avoid. He says, stay away from the idle or the disorderly. Look at verse, verse 6. He says, now we command you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness, not in accord with the, with the tradition you received from us. And then down in verse 10, for even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. Now, such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and earn their own living. You know, I've heard it said time and time again that 80% of the work in church 
or in anything is done by 20% of the people. And it's difficult to know how the percentages may have worked out in Thessalonica, but since Paul brought up this problem of idleness in the first letter and now again in the second, it must have been a significant issue. Not only were people not contributing to the ministry needs of the church, but they were not working at all. Now, I don't think this is a dig against people who are retired. Those people put in their work, and they're living off of that. Yay, I got an amen in the back. But Paul seems to be talking about able-bodied people who refuse to work and are dependent on others. And the command here is that we should avoid people like that. And really, as I thought about that, I was like, Paul, why do you want us to totally stay away from them? What is the purpose of that? Well, then he answers that question. Look down in verses 13 and 14. Or I'm sorry, 14 and 15. He said, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed that he may be ashamed. But do not regard him as, a, as an enemy, but instead warn him as a brother. Now, I know there are some people have, who have things that truly prevent them from working. And there are safety nets in our society and even a bit in the church for people like that. But as a church, we are encouraged to avoid people who won't work who think that work is beneath them. But in contrast to that, Paul says, since you're to avoid the people who won't work, I want to give you this principle to follow. Work. Do good work. We are to carry our own weight as much as possible. Look at verses 7 to 9. He says, for you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. For because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. Paul notes here that he could have expected people to just let him stay at their homes. He could have expected them to, to feed him. He could have expected them to pay his expenses. But instead, Paul, Silas, and Timothy did what they could do to provide for their own means. You may know Paul was known as a tent maker. And so it seems like his pattern was when he would go into a town, not only would he preach, and that's often what we read about, but every now and then we get these little glimpses that he would set up shop as a tent maker in the marketplace, and he would work. And even here he says, we work day and night. In many ways, work is an act of worship. When we use our God-given abilities for work, we are stewarding his gifts. We are not only providing for our own livelihood, but through our work, we are honoring him. Sinclair Ferguson said, man was made to work because the God who made them is a working God. But in addition to discussing people to avoid and principles to follow, Paul concludes this section with some practices in which to persist. Essentially, good work and good discipline. You know, sometimes work is exhausting. Sometimes work is thankless. Sometimes it can feel like you're getting nowhere. But Paul provides, I think, some encouragement 
Look at verse 13. He says, as for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. And this is similar to what he wrote in Galatians chapter 6. He says, let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially those who are of the household of faith. So whether it's good work for the home or good work in ministry or good work serving our neighbors or good work even in the marketplace, we are urged to do good. And I think John Wesley, he took this to an extreme when he said, do all the good you can by all the means you can in all the ways you can to all the people you can in all the places you can as long as you ever can, as long as ever you can. Sounds exhausting. But don't give up doing good. And some of the good work that we will do will take the form of good discipline. In fact, Paul even says, tells them here, he says, if someone won't obey what's here, write their name down, put them on a list, pray for them, but encourage them in the Lord. Essentially provide church discipline to them. So he notes this culture of prayer and a culture of performance in the church. But finally, Paul concludes this letter with a culture of providence with a culture of providence. In his closing benediction, Paul helps us see the involvement of God in the midst of the church. Look at the last three verses, 16 to 18. He says, Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of the genuineness of every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our, of our Lord Jesus be with you all. And so Paul seems to have uh, what, what John Stott calls a threefold blessing or threefold demonstration of God's presence in our lives and in our church. And the first is, is, is uh, he, that God, or Paul asks for, for the peace of God in the lives of the Thessalonians. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. God is the God of peace. He is the God who provides peace that passes all understanding. He provides peace that guards. There's a sense of calm that we can have, even in the face of the most difficult circumstances, because of God's blessing of peace. And that God may allow true times of peace. In fact, in, I, I was reading something that said in roughly 3,000 years of history, only 8% of those years have been years without any global conflict. They've been, there's, there's only 8% of the years in 3,000 years have had no wars anywhere in the world, which is astounding when you think that how many times has it been multiple, like we're seeing right now, Ukraine and Russia, Israel and Hamas. And yet God still will provide peace to us, to his people, in the midst of the pain of all of that. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, when he was arrested, several of, the, of his inmates and guards noted that he just exuded peace. He never protested being arrested. He just went wherever the guards would take him. As, as his days kind of got figured out, he would read scripture just like he would always do. He would pray just like he would always do. He would write. 
In fact, he, at, at certain times, he found that he was at such peace that he could just keep writing. And he, was, he wrote a, a big theological work in prison because God just allowed him to have this sense of peace. But this culture of providence not only is experienced with peace from God, but it's also experienced with the presence of God. Paul writes in verse 16, the Lord be with you all. God is with us. He is omnipresent, which means that he is everywhere. The psalmist understood this in writing Psalm 139. He says, where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If, my, if I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, your right hand shall hold me. And if I say, surely darkness will cover me and the light will be about, the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light to you, with you. But it's not only God's omnipresence that is with us. It is himself through his Holy Spirit. As you remember, on the night before Jesus was crucified, he, he told his disciples, he, he assured them that they would not be alone. John 14, 16 to 17 says, And I, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. And you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Beloved, know that God is with you. When times are going well, he is with you. When it seems like your world is about to end, he is with you. When conflicts are high, he is with you. When it feels like you're the only Christian you know in your class or in the office, he is with you. You are not alone. And so in this benediction, Paul has discussed the peace of God and the presence of God and finally the grace from Jesus that resides with us. Grace is one of those terms we like to throw around in church circles. My grandmother used to call it grace that we would say right before we'd eat. But grace literally means a favorable attitude towards someone or something. So in this case, the grace of Jesus is the grace that we receive from him. Warren Wiersbe said that there is a difference between grace and mercy. God and his mercy does not give us what we do deserve. And God in his grace gives us what we don't deserve. In his mercy, he withholds judgment from us. In his grace, he gives us life. And again, and Charles Hodge noted that the doctrines of grace humble a man without degrading him and exalt him without inflating him. We recognize that I, we don't deserve the grace that we receive. We don't deserve the grace that we keep. 
So friend, I want to encourage you, if you're not yet a follower of Christ, know that when Jesus came to earth, the very thing that we're going to celebrate in a few weeks at Christmas, this was an act of grace. His perfect life demonstrated just how far short we fall from God's holy standard. And his death and resurrection mercifully took the punishment that your sin and mine deserve. He offers salvation as a free gift of grace. Will you receive it? So over the last couple of months, we've observed in these letters to the Thessalonians encouragements for a church that is facing difficult times. And I've, I, I chose these books not so much because I think we're facing difficult times, but I think that we need to study, we need to learn, and we need to be prepared for whatever times God allows us to live in. But here in this closing chapter, Paul has helped us to see a bit of the role of prayer, of performance, and of God's providence in our lives. May we be people who pray for our leaders and for each other. May we be people who persist in doing good work, even thankless work. And may we find peace in the presence and grace of God. Let's pray.